This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Every month I go through so many steps to get my kids the Concerta that they need. Christine LaRue of Charleston, South Carolina, estimates she spends up to eight hours every month tracking down prescription medication to treat her children's ADHD. Call all of the pharmacies, navigate their phone trees, talk to somebody in the, in the pharmacy staff about whether the prescription was actually in stock calling multiple pharmacies and asking all of those questions. And then when you find it in stock, you have to call the doctor's office and have them send the e-scribe and hope and pray that they actually get it there before somebody else fills their prescription at that pharmacy where you did find availability. Like Christine, many Americans have been hit hard by a shortage of these prescription drugs. Here's Christopher Bell. It's been crazy. Uh, I've been on and off ADHD medication prescribed my entire life, practically. Being told by a doctor, you're just going to have to wait it out. There's not another option. It's pretty insane. In October 2022, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced there was a limited supply of Adderall, one of the most popular drugs prescribed for people with ADHD. The drug maker, Teva, cited manufacturing delays. But more than eight months later, Adderall still isn't easy to get, and neither are its generic forms. Other stimulants like Ritalin, Concerta, Vyvanse, they're also experiencing shortages. Kenneth Powell Jr., a pharmacist in St. Louis, Missouri, says the limited supply has also left many pharmacists scrambling. We've had to kind of help our patients augment their medication schedule a little bit to best meet their needs and what is a difficult situation going on, whether that means changing their doses to two 15-milligram capsules versus the one 30-milligram capsule, taking three 10-milligram capsules versus one 30-milligram. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The pandemic and its attendant supply chain collapses brought about shortages in sectors across the board, and pharma was no exception. However, in the case of the drugs used to treat ADHD, the shortages are ongoing— and they have multiple causes beyond a temporary bottleneck in raw materials. Government regulation is putting something of a ceiling on ADHD drug manufacturing. But there's also skyrocketing demand among adults with ADHD. And 16 years ago, way back in July 2007, Americans momentarily touched a milestone. That month, the number of ADHD medication prescriptions for adults surpassed the number of prescriptions written for children. And in 2019, researchers found that the rate of adult ADHD diagnosis was four times higher than the rate children were being diagnosed. So today, we're going to try to make sense of what's driving those numbers. Dr. Anthony Rostain is Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Cooper University Healthcare and Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Rostain, welcome to On Point. Thank you so much. 
Well, I wonder if we could first start with some definitions, right? Because, um, you know, when we talk about drugs and whether they're Schedule 1 or Schedule 2, it's a little hard to um, understand what exactly we're talking about. So most uh, ADHD medications contain, what, a compound or some drug that puts them under Schedule 2 for federal regulation. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Sure. Um, well, in 1970, the uh, Controlled Substances Act established a um, a series of levels of dangerousness and uh, concern about medications and listed Schedule II as ones that needed to be carefully monitored and uh, a, a host of, of restrictions placed upon the uh, prescribing of these medications. Okay, so the difference then, as I'm seeing here, between Schedule One drugs, which are they're drugs that the government sees as having no current medical. That's use. correct. Schedule One right. cannot be. Yes, those are those are off off limits for us to prescribe. Totally off limits. High potential for abuse and or addiction. Schedule Two has some medically acceptable uses, but still considered by. Uh, the government as potentially risky. Now, Schedule Two has things like. Um, oxycodone in it it's got fentanyl in it and what what is the um the compound or the drugs in common hdhd medication that lands in the schedule two category right the two categories of medication are the methylphenidate products uh and the amphetamine products and those have various brand names you know everybody refers in the past to the methylphenidate products as ritalin uh but that's ritalin was a brand name so we refer to them all as methylphenidate based and then there's amphetamine-based compounds, which uh, Adderall is the most widely prescribed, but there are several other versions as well. Okay. So I think some people might be su uh, surprised to hear us say that uh, ADHD medications fall into the same regulatory regime as Oxy or fentanyl. Um, so I'm going to tease folks with that for just a second and come back to it. Um, in a moment. But Dr. Rothstein, I had mentioned at the beginning that the uh, pharma companies that make these medications were saying that there were what manufacturing delays or supply chain issues that were pandemic related. What's your best um, understanding of? Yeah, go <laughs> ahead. Well, first of all, <laughs> let me just point out that it is extremely uh, disturbing to those of us who prescribe these medications to have medications for ADHD and other disorders that are treated by stimulants to be classified along with those other compounds. Mm -hmm. For the longest time, we believe that these are safe medications to prescribe. And unfortunately, uh, even though for 50 years they've been listed as drugs of abuse, uh, and by the way, that means it carries a lot of stigma. Lots of people don't want to take these medications because they're afraid of them. But we know that they work quite well. In fact, they work extremely well. And they're if well monitored, they don't create all these problems that uh, people are afraid of. So we've been stigmatizing people who take these medications and we've been making it difficult for prescribers because these are listed alongside um, the other, uh, these other much more concerning medications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the shortages, you know, there have been shortages be way before the pandemic, um, shortages in medications across the country have been noted for decades that they occur uh, with fair degree of regularity. And with respect to ADHD medications, um, we've seen these shortages prior to the pandemic, uh, but this particular one that began last October is worse than any of them 
and uh, we're not in the middle of a pandemic anymore. So there's a lot of finger pointing going on right now, a lot of different um, causes being being explored. Um, but I think the manufacturers are being a little bit, um, you know, facile when they say it's all got to do with supply chains or labor shortages. Um, and uh, there's a back and forth going on that's fascinating between the DEA that regulates these, how many pounds or tons, I should say, of amphetamine or methylphenidate are allowed to be produced each year and the manufacturers who produce them. Uh, and if you read in the Federal Register, you'll see that DEA says, hey, we don't see that there's a, you know, we, we our, our quotas, you know, our, our, our quotas every year are not even being seen as too strict from the standpoint of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, okay, can I just jump you, in here? Can I, can yeah. I one second to interrupt? My, and forgive me, because you said something that's really important, and I just want to tease it out a little bit. So DEA has uh, basically sets quotas for the amount of these compounds that um, can be used in the production of medications. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And then, and you're saying that, that even though pharmaceutical companies might be saying, well, hey, those, those DEA restrictions are making it kind of difficult for us to meet demand. That's not necessarily the case that, that in truth, they're not really saying that it's, it's too strict. In fact, they the uh, Federal Register uh, recently published a discussion uh, that DEA had with various constituents, um, and it listed it repeatedly said that when queried, the major manufacturers did not find a problem with the annual production quotas that are currently in existence. So that really jars with the reality of these shortages. So why, if if the pharmaceutical companies say, hey we we don't need a, a expansion of the production quotas then what's wrong why aren't we see why are we seeing such problems with distribution and you heard the people speaking earlier how much time people spend going from pharmacy to pharmacy and it, you have to dig a little bit deeper and say okay there may be some uh reduction in production or not an increase in production as we would imagine there should be with greater demand so why is the supply being limited uh -huh. and secondly what about the distribution? What's going on with the pharmacies? How are they deciding which pharmacies and which regions get the medication or which don't? And again, mm -hmm. that leads the public and in particular patients and prescribers in this really weird state where we aren't told where things are going. We don't know when this shortage will be uh, alleviated. We have no input. There's no regulation really of the whole problem of the shortage because the current system is not set up in a way that allows transparency and gives patients and prescribers a chance to sort of realize where and how are these, these shortages going to be uh, addressed. There's still no yeah. answer. Yeah. And you know, what's quite interesting about this moment is that, um, you know, in the past when we had shortages in 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 terms of um, prescription drug medications, it was oftentimes because, you know, there was maybe one manufacturer. So, you know, failures with that manufacturer were understandable in terms of leading to shortages at the other end when people try to go to the pharmacy and get the medications they need. But in this case, there actually are several manufacturers, including generic makers, who are all saying the same thing. We've got the Schedule II uh, regulation that you talked about with DEA. 
it's such a like crazy thicket between it really when pil- pills are made and when people can get the prescriptions. And uh, there was a new complication added to that thicket that the opioid settlement, mm-hmm. um, you know, regarding regarding um, oxycodone, actually limits how many pills are the all Schedule Two pills that wholesalers right. can give to pharmacies. Okay, so. Dr. Rostain, I made the fatal error of asking something very interesting right before we have to take a break. So I'm going to ask you to hang on for a moment. We'll pick up when we there when we come back. And we're talking today about the factors that are behind the continued so-called shortage of medications to treat ADHD. And we'll also a little bit later focus on why there's been a sharp increase in adults who are seeking ADHD medications. So one moment. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Dr. Anthony Rostain joins us today. He's Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Cooper University Healthcare, and he's with us to help us understand the multiple forces that are behind the uh, shortage that people with ADHD are experiencing when it comes to getting uh, their medications, their prescription drugs that they need. Now, Dr. Rustain, before the break, we had talked a little bit about the Schedule 2 issue, and um, we will come back to that in a moment. But <laughs> then I, had, mm-hmm. I was yeah. just about to ask about the fact that there is a legal settlement that also may have an impact on these ongoing shortages. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? For sure. Um, so... We all know that the opiate crisis in the United States has had devastating impact on our on our nation, you know, on individuals throughout the country who became addicted and eventually many of them succumbed to their opiate, you know, use disorder. Uh, and the DEA was very much concerned about establishing limits to how many uh, pills would be available as a way in a way to mitigate the chances of the sort of overprescribing that we saw. Now let's keep in mind no one doubts the necessity for careful uh, prescribing of opiates. Um, just like no one doubts the need for careful prescribing of stimulant medication. But what's happened is that immediately this this sort of the two medications, opiates and stimulant medications, have sort of become equated in the public's mind and in the regulators' minds. And so there's a lot of concern right now about stimulant misuse and abuse, 
which is a problem, no one doubts it, but it's nowhere near the scale of the problem that we see with opiates and with the way in which opiates were prescribed. So the, I would call it a, a, a kind of a guilt by association phenomenon where um, people who are prescribing stimulant medications are almost you know, watched even more carefully recently. I mean, we've always been carefully monitored, but now there's an extra scrutiny because of what happened with the uh, with the opiate crisis. And then I think both manufacturers uh, and, and other forces in the, for example, pharmacies themselves have now been refusing um, some of the prescriptions that we write uh, out of the question of, well, why are you giving this patient more than X amount of milligrams per day? And I am regularly asked by pharmacists to justify prescriptions that I've been giving to patients for years, again, under this somehow, what I would call the carryover effect or guilt by association, suddenly stimulant medications become the focus of a great deal of oversight and concern by people really who shouldn't be getting in the middle of uh, what are you know, relationship between patients and their and their clinicians. Mm. Okay, so a little bit more detail here because it's really interesting. I mean, this is sort of a a larger group of people who are, in a sense, indirectly being impacted by the opioid crisis. Because to be clear, there are several big main pharmaceutical wholesalers. I'm seeing that they're Amerisource, Bergen Corp, Cardinal mm-hmm. Health, and Mc- and McKesson Corporation. They've all tightened monitoring of what they would they believe are quote unquote suspicious orders from pharmacies so so basically what they're, what they're doing is they're making they are they limiting the number of medications for ADHD that go to the pharmacies where people would be filling their prescriptions well again i don't know how they're making yeah. decisions i'd see okay. the end result which is that my patients have to literally call around like you heard in the earlier mm-hmm. segment um and it's it, it'll all say the same thing we don't know when they're coming in oh there's a shipment coming in on tuesday i mean literally people are waiting for days to see if the medication they've been prescribed is going to show up in their pharmacy and i'll have one other anecdote which is a one of my very kind of enterprising patients actually called the Head, he as far as he could go up on the customer service side of a pharmacy chain to speak to him directly about his difficulties because his prescription was a little bit higher than other people's. And he was able to get an assurance and then actually was able to get more regular access to his medication. But he had to call all the way up the corporate chain of that pharmacy uh, company, of that farm, of the of the pharmacy. Uh, so I would say. There's a lot going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to, uh, but it is the case, as you said, that uh, they are apportioning the shipments very, very closely, very, very carefully. And uh, there's also, of course, an attempt to reduce costs on the side of, of pharmacy plans. So it doesn't hurt them at all to say limit whatever there is because they're worried, as you pointed out earlier, that the demand for these medications has gone up. So you know mm-hmm. how do we how do we regulate supply <laughs> that's really yeah. something that's mysterious to those of us that are really seeing this as a public health problem but it apparently it's being turned into a something of an economic issue okay so there's really, so some interesting detail from reuters in in reporting they've done about this they they you know in reading um some letters that amerisource Bergen wrote to one pharmacy uh, and interviews with pharmacists. 
They found that in certain cases, wholesalers imposed the bans because pharmacies had filled prescriptions written by medical practitioners who prescribed what they say were controlled substances uh, that included prescriptions for stimulants and sedatives to the same patient. So they're making some some decisions there essentially for the patient in, you know, in between what the doctor says um, and the pills that they can get. And then Reuters also said that they interviewed several pharmacists in at least five different states. And those pharmacies were told they were going to be cut off from the distribution of all of all controlled substances. They were going to be cut off by the wholesalers. Um, because of the their filling of prescriptions written by doctors. So there is, a, like, I completely agree with you. There's a very murky middle here that deserves some understanding. Um, but unfortunately, well, Magna, it's going to remain a, a little... Very important, that's a very important point, that the pharmacists at the front line themselves are feeling squeezed by yeah. the wholesalers. And again, uh, I mean, if you want my honest opinion, there needs to be some sort of national commission, you know, some sort of uh, effort, maybe by Congress to look into what's going on here, because uh, the the patients are being harmed. And I think public health needs are not being addressed when these sorts of, um, you know, policies are being written behind the scenes. And once again, you know, it may be well motivated, it may, may be well motivated by a wish not to repeat what happened with, uh, you know, the opiate uh, pandemic, as we saw. But uh, I really think they're going overboard. And the other thing that's occurring is that they're getting in and they're meddling into medical practice. I mean, we do have Mm -hmm. patients that take stimulants along with other medications. You know, most adults, for example, with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder actually suffer from other conditions like depression, like anxiety. Many of them have... um, you know, trauma. So, you know, we might be, in fact, combining medications for me- for patients who are complex. And uh, I think that's really dangerous for um, anybody to be telling, you know, practitioners what's best for their patients. Mm. But just to be clear, uh, Dr. Rustin, again, this is all coming because of, as you mentioned up front, the terrible cost of the opioid epidemic. And now we have, um, you know, things like fentanyl, which are killing people yes. um, when, when taken, um, especially illicitly. And the government still sees the compounds used to, in medications to treat ADHD as essentially an equivalent risk um, for, for, for abuse as things like fentanyl. I mean, are you just saying that that's a false? Are you saying that's wrong? Yeah, right. That's a false equivalency. Number one, number two, the you know, if you go way back to the 1970s and the Controlled Substances Act, it was actually developed under the Nixon administration with a very explicit agenda aimed at um, sort of making illegal substances that were becoming widely used by both young people in the in the anti-war movement and uh, the black power movement then they really used it as a weapon to try to uh stifle if you will the dissent in those days now it's not to say that control that substances shouldn't be controlled but you have to remember that before 1971 um amphetamines and and methylphenidate products 
were prescribed widely for these conditions we're describing. There was not the level of, of uh, scrutiny and almost a sort of a sense of criminalization, you know? Um, and patients now, when they go to the pharmacy, are routinely looked at as though they are um, misusing, abusing, or are faking their their dis their disorder, and there's a whole area of uh, a whole incredible blow a blowback effect on patients themselves who feel stigmatized, they feel ashamed, they feel afraid, and the other interesting problem um, is that you know whereas pediatricians and family physicians and child psychiatrists and neurologists will prescribe stimulants routinely for children. When it comes to adults, adult patients with ADHD are finding it very hard to find providers in primary care to prescribe these medications because they are basically told, if you have ADHD, I don't feel comfortable prescribing it, go see a psychiatrist. So there's a sort of a whole uh, mental health crisis in terms of access to providers for adults with ADHD because yes, they need maybe it's fine to come to a psychiatrist for a diagnosis and for you know making sure that they've started on the right treatment. But then when I and my colleagues try to send these patients back to their own primary care pr pr providers, many of those providers will refuse. They will say, no, I don't prescribe stimulants. And it's because they are afraid of the of the of both the harm that those stimulants might be might cause and that they will be viewed as, you know, they'll be taken advantage of by patients who are somehow gaming the system. So it's a very, very mm. thorny situation in terms of access to care. Uh, and I feel really uh, like we're just not equipped. We do not have the the resources from the provider side, from, you know, people who are yeah. willing to take this on. We can't, we can't refer these patients back to their primary care uh, uh, practitioners. And so mm. we end up having to, you know, work overtime uh, in, in, adult, in the adult uh, psychiatric world. Yeah, well, uh, there may be some gaming of the system because of that gap that you're talking about inter, uh, regarding the uh, inadequate number of providers. So I promise you I'll come back to that uh, in a second here. But just to recap, it seems as if we're resting our analysis on um, of the, the shortage for patients of ADHD medications on kind of like a, a stool with three legs. One of them may actually be um, some uh, some input supply chain issues that the, the pharmaceutical companies themselves have been making. The, the second one that we've talked about in detail is not only the Schedule II classification, but then also the wholesalers curbing the number of pills that pharmacies can actually put out because of the aftermath of the uh, opioid epidemic. And you just mentioned the third one, which is essentially the increase in demand, uh, especially amongst adults. So that's what I want to talk about for the rest of the hour. And, and first, let's listen to some folks um, who describe what they need. And here's some voices that can maybe get us talking about what's behind the increase in ADHD diagnosis, particularly in adults. I was diagnosed with ADHD uh, when I was 51 years old. Adderall is like walking into a quiet room. I have a, uh, an adult child who doesn't have ADHD but has narcolepsy, and we have been dealing painfully with the Adderall shortage. My son was diagnosed with ADHD several years ago, and at least how it manifests for him, we're able to manage 
quite well with other forms of support like cognitive behavioral therapy, support from his school through the counselor and his teachers. I have been using fish oil and DMAE uh, to greatly reduce, I mean, to a small amount, my ADHD medication. So those were On Point listeners Berwin Brazina in Washington, North Carolina, Jane in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, Denise Rapmund in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Michelle in Little Rock, Arkansas. So, Dr. Rostein, at the top of the show, I read a fact, uh, a research finding that showed that even prior to the pandemic, the rate of ADHD adult diagnosis was four times the rate of that children were being diagnosed. Does that match with what you've seen in, in your practice in terms of who's coming in seeking help? Yes, yes. Um, well, let's start off with some facts uh, that, that are behind what you just stated. Number one, um, when we began, there were finally some epidemiologic studies that looked at the rates of ADHD in the general population of adults. And it wasn't until the 21st century when that was even asked of epidemiologic Mm -hmm. surveys looking at mental disorders. And lo and behold, uh, over 4% of adults in the United States met met criteria for ADHD. Only about 11% of them at the time were getting any treatment for it. When you look at comparable statistics for children, um, roughly seven to eight percent of children, uh, or maybe a little more, and depending where, uh, met criteria for ADHD, and over thirty to forty percent of those children were getting treated. And in fact, uh, now at, at the time as we speak, it isn't c- clear, but you know, roughly half of kids are in some way or other getting a treatment, not necessarily with medication, but uh, whereas the numbers of adults have always, we it seemed to us number one, under-recognized, and number two, under-treated. So what you're probably seeing in this rise in the adult diagnosis is the growing recognition of the disorder in adults, uh, the the growing capacity of clinicians to identify and, and, and treat it, um, and the lowering of stigma towards the treatments for a, adult ADHD. And I'm proud to say that one of the organizations that I am a member of and was once the president of, the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, has made a major effort over the last decade to help clinicians identify ADHD in adults and be able to begin a course of treatment You know, using the proper kinds of assessment tools. Uh, by the way, treatment is not just medication. You know, I've always, for the decades mm-hmm. that I've worked in this field, whenever I go to talk about ADHD, all I talk about, because that's what people want to talk about, is stimulants and why are we giving stimulants. But truly, a full a full menu of treatment includes uh, cognitive therapy, you know, workplace or school accommodations, changes in your environment. So this has to be embedded in a broader discussion about, A, how do we help those adults? And how do we not just restrict the discussion to to meds or not? But definitely mm-hmm, medications mm-hmm. can help. For sure. So we will expand the conversation in the last portion of the show here, but also dig in a little bit more into... I guess that delay that you've been talking about in terms of recognition of um, ADHD in the adult population. So we'll do that when we come back. This is On Point. 
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We have at times had to go to three or four different pharmacies. We've had parents ask to borrow uh, a few days worth of medication because they have gotten to the point where they've had to run out. My son has ADHD and autism, and he is a very different child when he doesn't have the medication. It not only helps him focus, but also regulate his emotions and decreases aggression. I've been very fortunate here in New Jersey. The CVS has rarely had a shortage that lasts more than two days or three days maximum. But both drugs being scheduled to create a scenario where the pharmacists are quite, and understandably so, quite finicky about sharing where exactly the prescription drug might be in stock at a neighboring CVS. Her current physician, it seems to be more concerned about if she's going to be flagged for prescribing ADHD medications in Massachusetts, where my daughter is going to school, versus they're literally not available anywhere in our home state of Minnesota. Those are On Point listeners Brian Jacobson in North Bethesda, Maryland, Nicole Poland in Salt Lake City, Utah, Sebastian Leon in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and you heard Jane Miller, who lives right now in Coralville, Iowa. So, Dr. Rostain, again, keeping our our focus here on um, adults and the rise in um, ADHD diagnosis for adults, first of all, I want to get specific about things. Briefly give me the list of how um, ADHD manifests in adults versus children. Well, so most most of the adults with ADHD had some symptoms when they were kids, but may have either gotten over them relatively well because they had skills or they were treated and they decided they didn't need any more uh, treatment. Uh, it manifests primarily with difficulty with self-organization and self-regulation, uh, implementing plans, staying on track, focusing when you need to, disengaging when you need to, being able to prioritize. Um, we look at factors like 
working memory and whether you're able to uh, know where you are and where you're going, you know, moving yourself through space and time in a complex world. That's getting, of course, more and more complex as mm-hmm. we as we speak. Um, the hyperactive impulsive symptoms in adults tend to be not so much running around the room, but you know, feeling restless a lot, needing a lot of stimulation, maybe drinking a lot of coffee or smoking cigarettes or nicotine. And um, that kind of impulsive reactivity. And it's it's interesting that the mom of that young woman with autism and, uh, and ADHD uh, pointed out some important co-occurring problems with ADHD. Number one, the difficulty with regulating emotions and with getting upset very quickly. So we think emotional dysregulation is present in lots and lots of adults with ADHD. And oftentimes, third third important point is that many times uh, patients, adult patients are seeking help for depression, for anxiety, for substance use, for trauma. And in, in the course of getting those treatments, begin to recognize that even with treatment, they're still having trouble that I described and then become sort of aware of the fact that they have attention regulation difficulties. So, um, you know, I've always disliked the term attention deficit because it sounds like you have an anemia of attention, you know, a deficit of attention. Really what it is, is difficulty with regulating attention and with handling any kind of complex tasks that require us to plan ahead and stay on track for most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so adults will notice that they're inefficient, that they're late uh, getting assignments in or not paying their taxes on time or forgetful. Uh, forgetfulness is a really big thing. And procrastination, by the way, is one of the most common coping mechanisms that adults with ADHD use. And unfortunately, they use it to the point where they are messing up constantly because they'll always be putting off things to the last minute. Yeah. Okay, and so so these uh, symptoms then uh, in adults can also be traced back to in part a, uh, a a lack or a reduced amount of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the brain because I was I understand that that's part of what is believed to be the a causal factor. Yeah. Um, so look, we all like to think that it's just about a deficiency of one transmitter and that explains it all. What we know is that people with ADHD do have um, relative dysregulation of dopamine and norepinephrine. Uh, They're not tuned up to where they need to be to get the task done. We also know that situations that release a lot of dopamine, namely very stimulating and very rewarding situations, do help. People with ADHD can focus well when they feel very rewarded or when they feel very engaged in what they're doing. So yes, uh, what we know about our medications is that they increase the availability in the brain of those two transmitters. Um, and that's why they that's why stimulants work so well. Stimulants also work, by the way, for people without ADHD who are tired. So, you know, for years, truck drivers would use it. And they also help for people who are in boring situations where their mind wanders. Uh, so, you know, I, I have to say that if, if we could draw a line and say, this is someone with ADHD and this is someone without, our work would be really, really a lot easier. Right. <laughs> but attention and other executive functioning, you know, working memory and organizational skills, all of that uh, exists in sort of a bell curve in the population. And 
our, our scales, our assessment techniques, they tend to look for those who are in the, you know, worst 2%, 3% compared to their peers. But, you know, what about someone who may be in the 5% or 4 6% still having attentional difficulties? They're in that gray zone. And that's where mm-hmm. the environment plays a big role. And that's why, for example, during the pandemic, a lot more people came to realize that they might have attention regulation difficulties, uh, partly because the demands of being locked down and sitting at home made have to regulate your time more. And it was not easy for people. The other had to do with having to stay on Zoom forever and, uh, you know, being really on some level fatigued more easily. Yeah. One last, well, so one just... last metaphor. One oh, last sure. metaphor ahead, I give patients. I give another metaphor to patients with, with attention regulation. I say, you know, when you start off today, you may be fine, but what happens is you poop out by the end, by before the end of the day. So it's almost like the energy involved in staying engaged, you just don't have enough to sustain you through the whole day. So it's not like they're inattentive throughout the day. What generally happens is that if they don't take a break, if they don't have uh, ways of, 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 of you know, chunking and, and, and uh, you know, dividing up what they're doing, then they fatigue much more easily. Yeah, okay. So within people's experience of the pandemic, there's a lot to kind of peel back there. Mm-hmm. I got to ask, Dr. Rostain, with the rise in the number of people saying, perhaps I have ADHD during the pandemic, maybe, maybe again, it's, it's just that it was revealed to them as they were at home and had different demands put on them versus sort of, let's say, institutional structure around them in physically in a workplace. But at the same time, there's also, I mean, we're just living in a world which is, it's kind of at the doing two things to us at the same time. One is it's making it increasingly hard to pay attention to anything, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> because of those screens oh, yeah. and and the digital um, disruptions in our lives every day. And two, um, there, there's a kind of the opposite effect that there's so much competition for our attention. Exactly. That... Uh, that um, it even for a like highly functioning person with great executive functioning skills, it's getting harder uh, to stay regulated all day long. So, oh yeah, I mean, it's part oh, so part of what's a, going on here. Like, are we all living in an ADHD <laughs> world essentially? Yes, yes, we're living in an AD, ADHD ogenic or causing world. Right, many more distractions. Yeah. We have to develop better tools and skills for not getting constantly like the notifications on our phone or on our you know on our computers constantly pulling us away there's great evidence to show that the entire population is being made less effective efficient and focused because of a lot of the distractions and secondly um i would say that the the world itself um with not being able to just live in the world, physical world, move around, be in the breeze, be outside, that if we spend more and more time indoors, it's just not good for our brains. Um, and I would say that the you know the pandemic for people who had less of that kind of self-regulation abilities, um, for some who were able to navigate and develop those healthy uh, coping skills. Um, they did they did better. But I can tell you, many of my patients, especially kids and adolescents who were in school, they hated, they hated the Zoom learning. They couldn't stay focused. College students, really miserable for them, 
really hard. Mm. And um, and I do think that the other thing to point out in our in our conversation is the uh, the rise in this direct to, to people marketing of of companies like Cerebral yes. and yes. Uh, done. Uh, incorporated. I mean, they basically were marketing to everyone saying, oh, if you can't focus, if you're having trouble, you might have ADHD. Just come to our website. We'll diagnose you. We'll send you a prescription, et cetera. And that, I think, had a very negative effect as well, because what was really happening were people who might have had mild attentional problems were suddenly convinced they have ADHD. And so this self-diagnosis that that uh, we were talking about you know, earlier, it's like, I, I can see the pros of it in terms of, hey, maybe you do have this, but you really need to have a thorough evaluation. Someone yeah. really needs to go into depth as to why you, you know, you might not be paying attention because you're depressed or because you're anxious or because you're not happy with what you're doing. And um, there's so many other ways to look at attention difficulties besides saying it's ADHD. You know, I tell everyone ADHD is not Adderall deficiency disorder. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's also not trouble getting motivated for what I don't like to do. Um, but it is true that people with ADHD have trouble with motivation. Um, so it's really complicated enough that anybody listening who wonders really should t make the effort to get a full evaluation by someone who's competent to do so and to be sure that all the other possibilities that might be interfering with your functioning are explored. By the way, that also includes alcohol and other substances, uh, which were on the rise during the pandemic. You know, mm -hmm. there was a m really great rise in in drinking, <laughs> and drinking yeah. doesn't just, go along. Can, <laughs> drinking doesn't go yeah. well with trying to function effectively. So uh, we we look at all those complexities. So I just want to um, go back to one thing you said uh, that there were online services, right, that were telling people, if you have symptom ABC, you might have ADHD. Now, from what I understand, um, again, I'm, I'm trying to connect some dots in terms of how uh, a U.S. healthcare works. It wasn't until 2013 that adult ADHD was directly addressed in the, the DSM, right, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is, to put it bluntly, considered the what the diagnostic bible for psychiatry right. now right. when something la something lands in the dsm my understanding was that makes it easier for um pr for providers to write prescriptions in terms of those prescriptions getting approved by insurance companies so we have that and then we have the pandemic people already suffering in 50,000 different ways plus the attention problem and then we have this you talked about the gap in terms of providers. So filling that gap were some of these online services who people were saying, well, yeah, I just filled out some questions, maybe you know, did a Zoom with someone for 15 or 20 minutes and they said I had ADHD. So in a sense, it's the market responding to the um, lack of providers as you talked about earlier. But how long does an actual ADHD diagnosis take to make for adults when you are still largely relying on sort of self-reported symptoms? Like how long would it take you, Dr. Well, it, it, okay. So I take, well, again, people come to see me after they've been referred. So I'll take about an hour and a half to really go through carefully their, their history, their early childhood experiences. So part of the diagnosis is not just what are you feeling now, but how did you, how did you function when you were younger? You know, there are, there are standard diagnostic interviews that take 45 minutes to administer. 
that go through very specifically each symptom, both in adulthood and in childhood. And if someone isn't really spending the time carefully going over, well, did you lose things when you were a kid? Did you have trouble, you know, doing assignments on your own, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and also in adulthood? Similarly, you have to go through all of the other possible psychiatric diagnoses people have, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, trauma, substance use, et cetera, learning disabilities. Um, and so I think that it's important to have a professional evaluate. The, cl the clinical evaluation requires a thorough review of not only the individual's past and their, their current functioning, but getting collateral information. That's what we call talking to or getting information from people who know the person now and who knew them when they were younger. So a standard evaluation requires getting uh, input from, say, the child's parents, uh, the adult's parents when they were, you know, when they were a child, mm -hmm. and getting um, school records. Uh, all of this is helpful. Um, so no, you can't just do it in 15 minutes. Yeah. I think that's a real... That would be really, to my way of thinking, shortcuts and makes, and by the way, those shortcuts make it easy then to quote fake ADHD or, you know, there are online websites where you can basically learn how to fake your diagnosis <laughs> and tell, tell your provider, oh, I get distracted by bright, shiny objects, you know, or things like that. Uh, okay. So there is a, there is a, a, so a small but visible percentage of people who are in fact trying to get stimulants for performance enhancement. And they've been around for years and have been used that way for performance enhancement. So the job of a clinician is to sort that out and to make sure there's yeah. collateral information that validates the diagnosis. Right. And um, as we wrap up, I'm just going to point out one more thing that you said earlier before I say goodbye to you, and that is there are also um, non-prescription drug uh, therapies, right? That people can can oh, pursue Cog cognitive behavioral therapies, and we're we're out of time, unfortunately, Doctor Rusty. Uh, but I want to throw one 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 more in there. Exercise, exercise, exercise. Yes, right? Yes. Exercise, <laughs> sleep, and and doing your best to stay away from excessive use of substances. Uh, but there are lots of good websites. There's one called. Uh, ADHDinadults.com that Absart started, yep. and it's very informative for anybody who wants to learn more about it. There's a lot out there to educate you and make sure that when you do get the diagnosis, yep. it's done correctly. Well, Dr. Anthony Rothstein, Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Cooper University Healthcare, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>